So what I said before I turned my microphone on um, was asking a question. Have we heard of this expression, this idiom that seeing is believing? Are we all pretty, we're pretty familiar with that. By a show of hands, do you consider yourself a seeing is believing type of person? What do you think? Yeah. So why is it that we want to see something with our own eyes before we'll believe it? Any thoughts? You can say, if somebody wants to say something, we can't. Otherwise, we can just move on because I've got a lot of thoughts. Um, why, do we wanna, why do we want to see to believe? I used that phrase twice this morning when Mark said it's going to rain tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> believe it when I see it. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Barry, what do you think? Because we're being of senses, and so we want our senses to Yeah, fulfilled. that's good. Perfect. Yeah, when I was like, I was thinking about this, I'm like, look, we want to be sure. We don't want to be fooled. We don't want to give ourselves over to lies. We want to give ourselves over to truth, right? And this is important. And so it's like, Scott, this reminded me of um, our irrational Laker fan friends, okay? So Scott and I are on this Laker text chain. We talk NBA basketball all the time. Um, and we just have some irrational Laker fan friends, hopefully that don't listen to this some sermon podcast now. Okay. I highly doubt it, right? Okay, don't tell him that I said this. He's a really good friend. Um, but they're like, they're delusional talking about championships at this point. Um, and when they talk about championships right now, I'm just like, this is totally ridiculous. It's delusional. Um, when they talk Laker championships, I do exactly what you did, Linda. I say, I'll believe it when I see it, right? They're, they're a long ways uh, from this. And so the disciples, like many of us, they're seeing as believing types too. Um, but John the Evangelist is actually going to push us to something different. John the Evangelist is going to push us to consider hearing as believing also. This is, what the, this is kind of the big thing today. And so how do we come to believe in this impossible word that comes to us every Easter? Um, a word that we linger on for the whole Easter season all the way up to Pentecost. We linger on this word, risen. And so recently I read this book that made quite a splash. Uh, Eric and I actually read it kind of together, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Anybody read that book in here yet? So Eric, we're the only ones. Um, It's definitely not a book of faith. It's a history book. Um, And he's a little tough on people of faith, don't you think? Um, And so like, you have to have a little bit of a thick skin when you read his take on on religions because he's a little more basic maybe than... But it's an exceptional book. It's one of the most thought-provoking books I've ever read. And so one of the things he does, and Eric, you'll see how I do. You can grade me if I got This is really complicated, and I'm trying to like distill it down into something really similar, sim- simple. And he says that there's basically like three kinds of reality that historians are, are writing about. The first is just really simple, objective uh, reality. And so he says, like, you know, gravity, for example, is this objective reality that w- existed long before Newton discovered it, right? And then he talks about uh, subjective reality, um, which in, you know, depends on our personal feelings and beliefs. So when I go to the doctor, uh, my right hip is really hurting me, and I go get an MRI, and the doctor comes back, and he gives me the MRI, and he says, you know, look, I don't see anything wrong with your hip. Um, this isn't true, by the way. Um, but if that were to happen, my subjective reality of a sharp pain radiating down the back of my leg um, and into my back is just as real as it was when I went to get it checked out when the doctor says, I don't see anything wrong with you, right? And so this historian, Harari, writes about this third kind of reality. He calls it um, an imagined reality or an intersubjective reality. And what he says is that these imagined orders 
allow human beings to cooperate effectively to forge a better society. Um, and so he lists things, and this, this, hopefully this makes sense. He lists things like nations, corporations, markets, and of course, religion as these imagined intersubjective orders. He says they're really real, but that we construct them. We make them up. And so when human beings uh, don't believe in these things anymore, we rewrite the narrative and history moves on. Okay? Um, and so this is why I say if you're a person of faith when you read him, you've got to have a little bit of a thick skin. You've got to be able to think critically. But this got me thinking. I'm like, well, the gospel writer John is also a really brilliant writer. And John, too, gets me thinking critically. He would certainly disagree. He would say, well, look, either Jesus was raised or he wasn't. <laughs> you know, uh, so which which is it? And we we need to make uh, decide for ourselves what this means. And so, you know, he knew John knew two thousand years ago that his readers in the future were going to face this challenge, this impossible word risen, and we're going to have to deal with all of its complexities. We're going to have to deal with all of its problems and all of its detractors. And so he knew how hard it would be for the seeing-is-believing types to place our faith in something that many people say is imagined or impossible, right? He would say that dead people don't rise, and that God is only a figment of our collective imaginations. A lot of people say this, making faith more difficult today. And so the thing that interested me the most about our text that we're going to read is that John is going to offer us two gifts, And they're really important gifts in order to help us come to belief in this word, risen. The gifts are really simple ones. The gift of the Easter message that we find in Scripture and the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us understand it, right? These are the gifts that John is going to offer those who come behind. And so have we ever heard, we've heard sermons on Doubting Thomas before. Most of us probably have. Um, If you have, you've probably left worship gatherings listening to sermons on Doubting Thomas, feeling guilty for not being able to replace your doubt with faith. You know, it's like Thomas gets a pretty bad rap. Um, And I think unjustly, to be honest. Maybe we'll get into that. Maybe we won't. John knew, though, that moving from doubt to faith was going to be easier said than done. John knew this was going to be difficult for those that come behind because it was difficult for the original disciples. And so what I wonder is, I wonder if doubt isn't unique to Thomas, but rather more the typical response um, of nearly everybody at some point in their life to the word risen. And so a question that I was asking myself when I read this text was, how doubt tolerant is the God who raised Jesus from the dead? Think about that one. And you can answer that one for yourselves. Um, Let's pray. Almighty God, through your only Son, You've overcome death. You've opened up us up to the light of eternity. And God, we ask that you would meet us here in word and in spirit, the two gifts that you give, that you would speak to us in ways that help us know you more. Amen. Here we go. How doubt tolerant is the God who raised Jesus from the dead? We'll see what you think. John 20, 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, And the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
When he, heard, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. There's your seeing is believing type right there. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. This, I just find this stuff fascinating. After the brightness of Easter Sunday, John plunges us right back into this dark place of uncertainty, doubt, locked doors, and fear. Does that strike anybody as strange a week after Easter Sunday? This is a two-part story. The first part takes place on Easter evening without Thomas. The second part of the story takes place a week later with Thomas. So I've always wondered like, why Christians are so scared about doubt when doubt is all over the Bible. Like, we have to be able to deal with this. The Bible's full of examples of doubt within the disciples themselves. And so what we see in this story is the disciples are this strange mixture of belief and doubt. And so in that way, they remind us of ourselves. And so on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, the disciples, they're huddled together in fear behind locked doors. Uh, They're afraid that they might suffer the same fate as the Lord. They've already heard the Easter message, and look where they are. They're not yet convinced that Jesus is risen. And so Jesus shows up. Thomas isn't around. This is the single most inopportunely missed church meeting in history. The one meeting Thomas misses and Jesus shows up, right? I guarantee Thomas never missed another church meeting. So Jesus shows up and he's, there's these seeing his believing types. He shows them his hands and his side and they said, the scripture just says they rejoiced when they realized who it was. But Thomas isn't among them to celebrate this reunion. Why? Dead people don't rise. Romans don't make, didn't make mistakes crucifying people. Crucified messiahs are a failure. And so Thomas knows this. Um, He thinks that Jesus is dead of this. He's absolutely certain. And Thomas is off doing whatever it is he's doing. And so the disciples, when they see him, they share the Easter message with him. And this has got to be, I'm guessing, the second time that Thomas has heard this Easter message that Jesus has risen. But he wants to see it. He wants to see it for himself. He's not going to believe it until he sees it. And when I was like looking at this, I'm like, I think he's more conditional Thomas than doubting Thomas. And so I began to think about, like, how often do we do the same things? Like, if we tried this little exercise, right, what are our conditions for believing? If, if God would just do this 
fill in the blank. Then I would believe. Like, I'm a get struck by a bolt of lightning kind of a guy. Like, right? That's what I always say. I usually say it jokingly. You know, oh, if I just get struck by a bolt of lightning, whatever. But what are our conditions for believing? Thomas had his, and the disciples had theirs. And then a week takes place. And uh, after Jesus' Easter appearance, the disciples are gathered together again. And this is really interesting. They're still gathered behind closed doors, but this time they're not locked. Why? It's a tiny bit of progress, right? Now the doors are unlocked, but they're still closed. I'm like, what is this? Doesn't this behavior still seem strange to you? Now they've met and rejoiced at the resurrected Lord, yet they're still afraid. They're not uh, out on mission. They're still hiding behind closed doors. If seeing is believing, we might like to believe that this, a resurrection appearance, right, would immediately lead to perfect, mature, and complete faith. And yet, that is not what we see in this scripture. The disciples are still reaching toward belief. And this time, though, Thomas is with them when Jesus shows up. He offers the same greeting of peace. He offers Thomas the proof he needs in order to believe. He offers real, physical Evidence of the resurrection. Like, this is a moment. This is one of the moments in Scripture. Can you imagine the moment when Thomas takes a hold of the hand of Jesus? Like, this is a moment. When Thomas puts his hand on the wound in Jesus' side. And he's moved. He replies with one of the, like, probably the highest Christology in all of the New Testament when he calls Jesus my Lord and my God. And so even with the lofty confession, is Thomas's faith yet perfect? <laughs> He's still got a ways to go. But here's what we see. What we talked about last week, we see this word risen. It's starting to do its work on Thomas. It's challenging his certainties. It's re- beginning to kind of rewrite some of Thomas's basic assumptions about life. And so Jesus asked Thomas a really important question. He says, did you come to believe because... You've seen me with your own two eyes and because you've touched me with your, with your own two hands. And this is where Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap, right? He's criticized a little bit for this. I don't think Jesus is saying this to beat Thomas up. I think Jesus is in, this is the clue, is the very next sentence. Jesus is saying this. He's actually leaving a gift for the people who come behind. And this is maybe what I think is the most important thing in this text. And it's this beatitude or this blessing that Jesus leaves and this is left for us. This is, like, Jesus has people in mind, and so did John when John wrote this down. He has the people that will come behind in mind, and Jesus blesses us with this statement. He says, yeah, blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they've come to believe. Jesus says something really important here, that it's not just seeing is believing, but hearing the gospel can lead to belief too. And so John, the narrator, he kind of inserts himself into the end of the story. He tells us, he says, the reason I wrote the book, he gives us the reason. He says that he wrote it so that all future generations, for people like you and me, would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing in him, we would have life in his name. And so we know that faith is rarely easy. We're reminded today that Jesus blesses us with these two things. We're given the gift of his word to help us take steps toward faith. 
And then we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us understand and make sense of this mysterious and difficult word. And these gifts say that we're not alone in our discernment. And so from John's prologue, in the very beginning in chapter 1, I think he's doing something with the creation of the universe he talks to all the way to the end, the final chapter of his gospel. John is reminding us that we didn't have to be there in person in order to believe it. You know, we didn't have to be there in order to believe it. We don't have to see it in order to believe it. We can hear the gospel. We can hear it, and the Spirit can still produce faith in us. In believing, we're promised life, life today, life tomorrow, life forever. I want to finish by going over something that I deliberately skipped over and saved it until the end. The disciples are fearful. They're hiding. Jesus appears to them. And do you remember what he appeared to them for? He appeared to them in order to send them back out. And so Jesus breathes on them, it says, and invited them to receive the gift of the Spirit. This is John's kind of big commissioning. It's his Pentecost, really. Even when faith is difficult for us, even when we're huddled behind locked doors in fear, Jesus keeps showing up. This is what John is saying. He keeps showing up in word, in bread, in wine, and in spirit. And so Jesus breathes on his disciples. He spoke about this. This is the strangest part of the text. He speaks about, the, about forgiveness, right? About forgiveness and the retaining of sins. It's a kind of a weird, very mysterious statement. And I think it means something because he's not... This is what some people would say, oh, yeah, he's giving the disciples some like, special superpowers to forgive. Like, I, I just think what he's doing is actually much simpler than that. I think he's telling us, he's specifying what it means to be sent. When Jesus sends us, Jesus sends us as agents of forgiveness. And so forgiveness releases, whereas retention keeps us stuck. It keeps us held onto or in the grip of And so Jesus sends us out as agents of forgiveness in order to help people get unstuck from all kinds of things that bind us up. As I was working on this, I was driving around, and I was listening to NPR's On Point. Do we have any NPR fans that listen to that show? Meghna, Chuck Nabardi, maybe someone was listening to this, had this show, and she was talking about the um, Gavin Newsom's recent moratorium on the death penalty in California, and people were calling in. Um, And this one woman called in. And I just was totally blown away by this phone call. She talks and shares, and she she was so gracious to this woman. She gave her all kinds of time. And this woman shared a story about her brother who was beaten to death by two men. And so she went into detail that her brother died while sustaining more than 150 blows. The autopsy revealing that it was a boot to the head that cracked his skull and ended his life. This woman who had every reason to want to exact revenge on these two thugs for killing and murdering her brother, actually calls in and stands in opposition to the death penalty. She actually went to the hearing and stood in opposition to the death penalty for the two men who killed her brother. Um, And at this point, I'm like, she's got my attention. I'm listening. Uh, It it doesn't even matter what your position on the death penalty is because it's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, she, She moved on, and she said, look, I'm not sure why I did this, But one of them came up for parole, and she decided that she needed to go to his parole hearing. So she shows up at his parole hearing. And at the parole hearing, the murderer turns to face her. And he says, not a day goes by that I wish I couldn't trade places with your brother. Not a day goes by that I wish that I were the one who was dead and your brother was the one who was alive. 
And he said, I'm so sorry for what I did to you, to your brother, to your family. Now, this woman asks, this is just, can you imagine this? I don't know how this is possible. She asks to approach, and she's granted permission. And she takes the man by the hands, and the two of them sit and cry out together, talking and just crying about uh, grieving over this man's sin and the pain that it's caused. And at this point, like, I'm driving, all right? So I'm actually concerned that, uh, that I'm going to be cited with a DWM. Do you know what that is? Driving while misty-eyed. Um, like, I'm like, I'm swerving all over the road. I'm like, this is, no, oh, you know. And she, as she's holding the hands and she's talking about this, and she says that as she's holding the hands of her brother's murderer, they're crying it out together in the courtroom. She says that it was a moment of healing and forgiveness that changed her life, she said. And then she closed her call with what really got me thinking. She said, if that moment changed my life, imagine what that moment did for him. This is the retention and forgiveness of sins. Maybe, the, maybe they were both released from the grip of something at that moment. And so Jesus' mission of forgiveness that Jesus passes on to the church, this is life-giving This is life-giving stuff. Jesus wants to move us from doubt into faith so that, one, we can experience life in his name. That's what it says. And two, so that Jesus can send us out as agents of transformation and forgiveness in the world. Retention and forgiveness. One keeps us stuck, and one frees us and others for life. The word risen John knew was not going to be easy to believe, but neither is a woman forgiving the murderer of her brother, right? Like, does that make it any less real? Not to me. And so we're reminded that we've received, we've received the gift of the gospel. We've received the gift of the scripture, and we've received the gift of the spirit to help us make sense of it and understand it. And these are treasured gifts of the church. Jesus has met us here today in word and spirit. Next Sunday, Jesus will meet us in the bread and the wine, all to encourage us in our faith, not to beat us up over our doubts. The church has been proclaiming the truth of the word risen for over 2,000 years, and we proclaim that truth today. Seeing can be believing, but what John says is that hearing can be believing too. May God move in our hearts as we reach toward belief like the disciples. And may we live the way of Jesus, which leads to life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.